Carolyn Randall Williams is an award-winning poet and activist. She's a writer-in-residence of medicine, health, and society at Vanderbilt University. Last year in the New York Times, she wrote a piece titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument, which has only become more powerful and relevant since the violent coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Carolyn Randall Williams. It was founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. So I want to start with a piece you wrote for the New York Times last year when we were debating nationally the removal of Confederate monuments. Uh, The piece was titled, You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. I want to ask you uh, about the imagistic sort of analysis that that you used there, which I thought was so, so powerful, and sort of cast it forward to what we saw during this really violent, white supremacist-inspired insurrection in Washington, D.C., as we saw images of people, for instance, carrying the Confederate flag through the halls of the Capitol. It seems to me there's a very strong connection between those things and what you were talking about last year. Yes. Wow. I love being asked to put those two things together. Uh, It's not a juxtaposition. It's really just another layer of context. Um, you know, I think when I wrote the piece, what I was asking readers to do was not rewrite history or paint over anything, but to re-remember and to reframe what we know um, by adding more layers because, you know, silencing happens in real time systems of oppression mean that people who are living the same space of time don't get their histories recorded. And then, you know, because of uh, oral traditions and because of lived experience and collective cultural memory, those of us who have been able to transcend the oppression of our ancestors are able to look back and retell the stories that were silenced in real time. And I think what we saw at the Capitol was just another, um, more of the dregs of what happens when we don't revisit the past in order to add more layers of context. Mm. Um, I think that what we watched was people, you know, when you think of the uh, current, thankfully soon-to-be past president um, and the rhetoric uh, of his campaign, Make America Great Again, the kind of nostalgia that he was talking about was predicated on um, systems of oppression that actually are a shame or a a blot on America's history. They're a stain that the founding fathers knew even as they wrote this place into being. If you look at Thomas Jefferson's papers, he knows that slavery is America's original sin, um, and he knows that it is not one that is really, uh, it's not an excusable one. He thought it was an inevitable one, but he did not think it was an excusable one. Um, And so I think that when people pine for a great America, it's a great 
America for those that are benefiting from the people whose necks they're standing on. Mm. Um, and I think that the people that stormed the Capitol indignant uh, want to go back to a time when we can forget about the next standing part of things. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I wrote that article to remind people that some of us live in bodies that we'll never forget because yeah. that uh, oppression is written into our DNA. I, I mean, and, and that was, that was again, what made that piece so powerful was that it, it, it talked about how impossible it is to not see, right? To not mm-hmm. see these things. If you're African-American, if you're an African-American woman, it it, it, it is defining in a way that, uh, that, that is inescapable. But at the same time, I feel like um, maybe what we saw at the Capitol is also impossible to, to look away from, is impossible to forget. And that makes it harder to, to suppress these, these uh, to suppress the idea that we haven't dealt with, with, with all of this. I think it's such a stark image, again, uh, someone with the Confederate flag slung over his shoulder, you know, mm-hmm. waltzing through the, the, the rotunda. Uh, it, it, you, you can't unsee that. And, and so it, it, it makes it harder, I hope, to unsee what that represents and, and what it tells us about where we are as a people. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I will say I'm working on a piece right now um, that I hope will come out soon on the heels of this conversation um, about that exact concern that you've just articulated because mm. on the one hand um, on the one hand yes I think that it is it is frankly in the midst of all of this chaos it is heartening to see that people are genuinely alarmed by this but it's also disheartening or it is heartening to see the genuine alarm. It's heartening to see that people are so uh, shook by this, even the conservative, some conservative Republicans. Mm -hmm. What is disheartening is that they're shook by this (laughs) because (laughs) it means that they didn't know what was already there. Uh, I think that we're grappling as a country with the fact that, you know, if you have an infection and you put Neospor on it and it kind of goes away, but then you neglect, you know, the wound, um, the, the infection will reemerge. Or if you take a, it's, it's not even a good enough one because I don't know enough about gangrene. What I do know about is things like antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases, right? If you only take your medicine until you feel better and don't take the full dose, then your body just becomes inoculated to the medicine that can actually help you. Um, And then down the road, when you actually get sick again, the medicine won't work, right? So I think think that America is sort of dealing with a moral version of this antibiotic-resistant disease Um, because I think that, you know, we sort of beat it back and beat it back, but we never actually dealt with the original infection. Um, of systemic racism, of slavery, of uh, the forced migration and genocide of the people who lived on this land before Europeans got here. Um, and 
we've sort of said, well, we've stopped doing all that now, so let's just get on with it. Um, but that's not how repentance works. That's not how um, infections are resolved in the body. Um, that's not how any healing begins. Yeah. So I think that we're, we're living through a moment where we have to say, are we really prepared to do the work of cleaning and sealing properly the wound? Are we going to develop um, a treatment for this illness fundamentally? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Oh, and I was I was mentioning the article that I'm I'm working on right now. Confederates entered the Capitol within decades of the Civil War ending, if not before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after the you know once they locked down, once they stopped all of the recon uh, the reconstruction. Uh, black elected uh, officials, um, they just, all those white men in power who had been Confederate officers ran for, uh, ran ran for, for seats yeah. and re-entered the Capitol as uh, reintegrated parts of American society. They were not examined for their crimes. They were not reproached for being traitors. They were given seats in the House and the Senate. Um so Confederates breached the Capitol. You know, my great-great-grandfather, the one I wrote about in that piece that you referenced, Edmund Pettus, he was a Confederate general who then served in the United States Senate um, until his death. So Confederates breached the Capitol uh, right after the Civil War, and they stayed there until they died. And, you know, last I checked, um, the flag, the Confederate flag was hanging in the Capitol until November of 2020, when Mississippi finally voted to take it off of their state flag. Right. Um, and I think that we do our country a profound disservice when we forget that we've never been better than this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is such a powerful thing to consider that we've never, we've never been better than this. This is Created Equal. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. After a quick break, more of my conversation with Carolyn Randall-Williams. I'm Ian DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhart. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat. That is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. I want to give you a chance to talk just a little about what it's been like in the last year as an activist, uh, as a woman of color, as somebody who is focused on these issues and this work. Um, I, I think for for lots of us, there, there aren't other years that compare uh, <laughs> in terms of the things that have happened to us, in terms of the things that we've had to think about. Uh, I, I'm curious what that process has looked like for you. Wow. Uh, again, it's such a pleasure to be talking to you this morning. These are great <laughs> questions. Um, I had the opportunity to speak to some high school students yesterday morning, and they asked me, one of the students asked me, you know, what were my defining moments in youth that made me want to put pen to paper to become a writer and to be, um, and to use my voice for good um, in this way? 
Uh, and you know, the student reference, you know, the Parkland shooting was very defining for her, um, for example. And then obviously these past four years, but especially the 2016 election. And I, it was, and I found that question moving because I think one of the one of the big ticket items in my life that I landed on was Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, mm. the tw- the 2008 election. I'm still feeding my will to work off of the hope that I stored then. Wow. Um, I worked. I interned on Capitol Hill for my congressman, Jim Cooper, for uh, a chunk of that summer. And then I uh, went to work every day for the remainder of the summer um, at the Tennessee, uh, the the DNC's Tennessee headquarters um, here in Nashville. And I registered people to vote all day. I made calls when I wasn't at the desk. Um, And I you know, felt this joy and I want to say there was a fear, but it was a fear that was attached to hope. Baby Smith has this amazing essay about joy and how it's actually this terrifying feeling because joy is attached to, you're so joy, part of the um, elation of it is attached to a fear of losing the thing yes. that you're so happy about. That's right. Um, like a big love or... Um, a new a new life, things like that. So I think I felt this joy and I, I was almost afraid of my joy because I was so I was like, what if this doesn't work after all of this amazing, hard, all, all, all of this effort, all of this potential, this um, long last payoff of this first black president. And then it did work. Um, and that was to me, America working. It was, you know, Dr. King talks about, uh, cashing a check <laughs> that this country owes to black people. And there was at least a deposit into the bank of what this country owes us during um, that, during those moments in 2008 um, and watching him and Michelle and the two girls walk out on stage mm. in November. I, I remember weeping in the dorm, in the common room of my dorm in college um, and it was, it was wild. I was working on a paper that day for, uh, I was taking a class with uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates with Skip Gates. Um, and I was writing a paper about Frederick Douglass's speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July. <laughs> um, because I, I'd chosen that topic because I was nervous. I needed to fortify myself for the work ahead if it didn't go well <laughs> uh, on, uh, on, the, on Election Tuesday. And then it did go well, and I just, I've never felt anything quite like that before or since. Um, But what I will say is, in this moment in time, I'm still living off of that feeling of the potential energy that I remember from that moment. And I think, um, and I I don't think I'm alone. I think that there are a lot of people of color. This has been the hardest sustained chapter that I have lived through under normal conditions, you know barring personal tragedy, and I've never been to war, for example. But I think I've never felt more like it's... um, The lack of precedent is part of the potential energy, Mm -hmm. I guess, is what I'll say. I feel like 
it's never been more time for us to be sure that whatever we feel like we need to say, we just ought to go ahead and say it because um, all of the norms have been abandoned and for good and ill. And part of the good is that it's now time for those of us who have found our way into white spaces, into positions of power, um, navigating these systems of white supremacy. We now, after all of that work, we're suffering from watching this wildness, but we're also already in these spaces and the things that we haven't allowed ourselves to say, we now get to say, and we have a platform to say them. So I think that's, that's sort of where my head is with all of that. That was my conversation with award-winning poet and activist Carolyn Randall Williams. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear my conversation with Princeton University African-American Studies Chair, Dr. Eddie Glaude, author of the book, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. So whiteness is this idea that, or it contains this idea that, that some lives ought to be valued more than others. And it's precisely that belief that leads to the devaluing and disregard of other lives. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Jake Neer, Anna Marie Seisling, and Claire Brennan. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan and Rowan Niamisto. Our composer and senior editor is Sam Bobian. And our social media and digital assets are done by Maida Stangi and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. <laughs>